Wow, it's never been so fun to break the law, isn't it? Worshiping the Lord is against the law in California. Praise God. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you all so much. Well, good morning once again to you all. It's so good to see you this morning. We're beginning to see faces we haven't seen in a while and some new faces today. And uh, we're just so blessed that you have chosen and exercise your First Amendment rights and guarantees of the freedom of assembly and the freedom of the free exercise of religion to come and to worship the Lord here with us this morning, Calvary Chapel of Visalia. Welcome to everyone who's watching online. We're sorry that you can't be here with us in person, but we uh, uh, pray for you as well, and thank you for tuning in. Pastor Bob referenced this uh, re- referenced this letter, this statement that was put out by John MacArthur, Doctor and Pastor John MacArthur, and this is pretty significant because John um, is the founder and probably the president of Masters Bible College. I would imagine he's still the president. He's 81 years old now, uh, and we, you know, we disagree theologically on a couple of points, but we agree with them more than we disagree with them theologically. Uh, good Bible teaching churches, and uh, a lot of the uh, pastors who came out of Master's Seminary, which Master's Seminary has a huge influence in Southern California, um, and, and a lot of pastors who were here in this valley uh, attended Master's Seminary, and uh, they've been pretty much following the governor's orders because they've been waiting for John MacArthur to come out and take a stand, which now he has done. Uh, one of the biggest churches probably in the country down in Southern California in Sun Valley. And then his influence is tremendous. There will be hundreds, perhaps thousands of churches now uh, that will reopen as a result of John MacArthur's decision to uh, basically practice civil disobedience, as we've been talking about here for the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to read an article actually that Shannon Grove sent me this morning. Senator Shannon Grove sent me a copy of this article from the Daily Wire. And uh, this is uh, from John Brown, July 25th, 2020. The headline is, Compliance Would Be Disobedience. Prominent California Church Defies State Lockdown to Resume In-Person Assembly. And I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs here. The pastor and elders of a prominent evangelical church in California issued a statement on Friday explaining why they will no longer comply with the state's mandate ordering them to refrain from in-person gatherings. John F. MacArthur, the 81-year-old senior pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, also claimed that the state had overstepped its legitimate God-given authority citing Christ and the Bible as the ultimate authority over his congregation, MacArthur wrote in the lengthy blog post replete with Scripture that, quote, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands, unquote. And the article goes on from there. So um, this is huge. This is a big deal. It's exciting. The church needs to unite. The church needs to unite. And if the church were to unite and the Christians were to get up and actually wake up and start to 
let their light shine and not just sit back and, and wait for someone else to do it. Uh, we could take back our country for God. I mean, God could pour out His Spirit and have mercy on us, but the church has to get involved. We have to wake up. We cannot sit on the sidelines apathetically and just wait for someone else to fight this fight. This is our fight. We have to stand. And this is exciting that uh, Pastor John has come to this uh, decision. So we, we rejoice with them. Okay, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 5. We were here on Wednesday night. I encourage you to listen to the message uh, if you were not here on Wednesday. And as Pastor Bob mentioned earlier, he, he found out that he actually fractured his back. He'd been saying that his back had been hurting him terribly since he fell a few weeks ago now, three or four weeks ago. Um, and he, he found out that he did fracture his back in a couple of places. So uh, I'm going to uh, be teaching here Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights until he's back up to speed and feeling like he can come back in. And then we'll uh, figure out what that's going to look like based on his health. But until then, you're kind of stuck with me here on Sunday mornings uh, and Wednesday nights. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 20 here. And I encourage you to listen to the message from Wednesday where we, where we went through pretty much the whole chapter, verses uh, 8 through uh, eight through 30. And so um, if you're interested in, in, in hearing what the whole chapter has to say, I encourage you to listen to the message from Wednesday. But Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And I've entitled this message, When Evil is Called Good. When Evil is Called Good. Now, Isaiah is pronouncing the judgment of God upon Judah uh, because of their wickedness, because of their sins as a nation, they knew better. Uh, they were playing uh, church or going to the synagogue and playing religion there in Judah at this time. They thought they were right with God, but they were worshiping other gods. And uh, the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, begins to call them out one thing after another after another. And it's the woe judgments. Woe to you. Woe to those uh, woe are you. Woe to men uh, who do these things. And yet, really, verse 20 kind of encapsulates all of it. It's really that they are calling evil good and good evil. Who are calling darkness light and light darkness. Who are calling uh, bitter things sweet and sweet things bitter. We read in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. 
Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. And so the prophet of God was was called to call them out, to call them to repentance so that they would get right with God, so that God would not have to judge them. And I do believe that God is judging our nation. A lot of people won't say that because they want to uh, apologize for God being holy, but we can't apologize for God being holy. We know better as a nation. We know better. And so as we run headlong, literally over a cliff, moral cliff here in America, um, it is the love and the mercy of God that He begins to chasten us and not let us get away with it. And so, but we have to turn back to Him. We have to see that the Lord is allowing these things to happen. God's not the author of evil. We know God doesn't do evil. He's holy. He's righteous. He's true. But He could remove His hand of protection that He's been covering us and protecting us because there is an evil one named the devil and Satan who's out to steal, kill, and destroy. And God has been protecting us from the enemy for so many centuries here in this country. Uh, because we've been a people of God and, and when we've gone through hard times and difficulties, we've turned back to God. Not so this time, at least not yet. We're turning to everyone but God to solve our problems here. And uh, I think that things are just going to continue to get worse and worse for us as a nation and for our world if we don't repent and turn back to God in a sincere, authentic, genuine sort of a way. The prophet was called to be as all prophets of God were called to be and are called to be. The pastors are now the prophets. You're the prophet. If you're speaking forth the word of God, you're prophesying God's word to people everywhere that you go. But the prophet was called to be the watchman on the wall. He was called to be the one who would sound the trumpet and warn the people of the impending danger which was imminent if you would not repent the judgment will come. This is what the prophets would say over and over again to God's people, Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, and you don't have to hold your place there uh, in Isaiah 5, but in Ezekiel chapter 3, we read this with the prophet Ezekiel, the call of God upon Ezekiel's life, calling him to be a watchman. Ezekiel 3 verse 16 says this, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. 
Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. And so the prophet of God was called to be the one who would speak the truth to God's people, who would implore them and exhort them and rebuke them to repent of their evil ways and to come back to God and to serve the Lord, the true and the living God. And there was the responsibility for the prophet of God that if he refused or if he neglected his charge to warn the people, God says, I will require their blood at your hand. It's going to be on your head that you did not warn the people before the judgment came. Watchmen on the wall. In Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Therefore, you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we live? Uh, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? We have to be courageous. We have to be bold as lions in these last days. We cannot compromise. We cannot capitulate. We cannot keep quiet. We must be the watchman on the wall, especially as we see the day of the Lord approaching. The time of the tribulation is coming. The man of sin, the son of lawlessness, that wicked one who's going to be empowered by Satan himself is coming. I don't believe we're going to be here. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Certainly, I believe in a pre-wrath rapture. I don't think we're going to be here for the time that the mark of the beast is actually forced upon uh, this planet. But it's all coming, guys. All of this was predicted thousands of years ago. Everything that we see happening is coming together in our lifetime. 
And so this is the time for the church to awaken from her sleep. It's time for the church to be a watchman on the wall, to see the sword coming, to see the judgment of God coming and to blow the trumpet so that people might repent and turn back to God. Indeed, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want to judge us. He doesn't want to judge people. Uh, however, if we continue to kick Him out of our lives and kick Him out of our schools and kick Him out of our government and kick Him out of our homes, and even some places they kick God out of their churches, what can we expect? The Lord has no choice but to judge us. In Second Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament, Peter says this about the Lord not wanting to have to judge his people. Second Peter chapter three and verse nine says this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is showing us mercy. He's showing us patience and long suffering in not judging us more severely uh, as a nation. He's calling us back to Himself. He does not want uh, for anyone to perish. He has no pleasure in the death uh, of the wicked. Alex de Tocqueville, Alex de Tocqueville, who wrote uh, a book called Democracy in America, uh, he came to America in 1831. He was a French uh, sociologist and a French theorist or political theorist. And he went to see why America was so prosperous and America was so great as just a, a, a nascent nation in the early 1800s after we just uh, pretty much threw the, the British out and established our own country here. And he said this, uh, his takeaway after traveling around the American countryside and observing Americans, he said this about America. He said, America is great because America is good. Whenever America ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Think about that. America is great because America is good. When she ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And we're seeing our greatness waning because we are no longer a good people. We are a wicked people. Look at our nation. We have to preserve faith and morality in our generation. We're always one generation away from losing the faith of a nation and of a country. Look at Europe. These countries that were for a thousand years, Great Britain was a, was a Christian nation for a thousand years. Not anymore. They believe in anything and everything but Christianity in England today. They believe in UFOs and aliens and Doctor Who and, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, interesting science fiction things. They have Muslims everywhere, uh, but the cathedrals are empty. As a matter of fact, they're converting the cathedrals all over England into mosques and shopping centers because nobody wants to go to church over there anymore. They were a Christian nation for a thousand years. They sent missionaries out all over the world. We came from England initially, our founding fathers, and yet the church in Europe is primarily overwhelmingly a dead church. And so we're always just one generation away from losing the faith. We have to actually pass the faith of our fathers down to the next generation or it will cease to exist. I'm going to read a couple of articles um, related to some of the... Uh, polls that are coming out 
from Barna. Uh, Barna does a lot of polling uh, with regard to faith and faith issues in our country. And the polls are very, very troubling when they're interviewing people about what they believe in America. Uh, this shock poll was related to the me-centered gospel and the results in a dramatic drop-off of biblical beliefs. And uh, this article was authored by Dr. Michael Brown. He says this, and this is just an excerpt from this article. He says, a new Barna poll, and this poll was about, I think this poll was about six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago. <clears throat> he says, a new Barna poll points to a dramatic drop in biblical beliefs among American Pentecostals and Charismatics. If the findings are accurate, what are the likely causes? According to the poll, quote, although we proclaim in God we trust on our currency, a slim 51% majority of Americans believe in a biblical view of God, down from 73% 30 years ago. Increasingly, the research finds mounting evidence that Americans are both redefining and rejecting our God. Orthodox beliefs about God declining most rapidly among Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Stunningly, Americans are more confident about the existence of Satan than they are of God. Overall, 56% contend that Satan is an influential spiritual being, yet almost half, 49%, are not fully confident that God truly exists. Think about that statement. More people believe in Satan in America than believe in the God of the Bible in America. That should be troubling to you. It's certainly troubling to me. He continues more specifically, the largest declines in, in possession of an orthodox biblical perspective on the nature of God since 1991 were among individuals who attend Pentecostal or charismatic Protestant churches, down by 27 percentage points. People in the 18 to 20 year old category down 26 points. Adults in the elders generation, i.e. people born before 1946, down 25 points, and women down 25 points. He says, I do not have access to the full results of the Barna poll, so I cannot analyze all of the data. But if Barna's polling, polling is accurate, my educated guess would be this. We are reaping the fruit of preaching a me-centered self-improvement gospel that is not the gospel at all. We are seeing the results of our failure to teach doctrinal foundations, choosing to major instead on esoteric spiritual experiences and secondary or tertiary issues. We have reaped what we have sown. Again, I cannot prove that these are the causes, but what cannot be denied is our failure, especially in some of our largest, most visible ministries to major on the majors, to preach a clear gospel message that convicts of sin and points to the cross, to call for repentance, to teach more on the nature of God and the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ, along with the teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In times past, we preached that sinners were wretched and that grace was amazing. Today, we tell sinners that they are amazing, making grace a needless afterthought. In times past, we preached a gospel of salvation. Today, we preach a gospel of self 
improvement. In times past, we preached death to the flesh, death to self, and death to sin, pointing to a brand new life in and under Jesus. Today, we preach that Jesus came so that you could fulfill your dreams, that He came to make you into a bigger and better you. We used to preach the Gospel of self-denial. Today, we preach the Gospel of self-realization. How true. How true and how sad for our nation. A second Barna poll that is troubling, and this is also recent, maybe in the last three weeks, this poll. U.S. is in moral freefall as everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Judges 21-25 says, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The consequences of rejecting God's truth are undeniable. We know that what we believe dictates how we behave. Today we are seeing the moral breakdown permeating the culture around us, and it is playing out with devastating consequences in our culture. This was the conclusion of Lynn Munziel, president of the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University, who conducted a new poll in association with the Barna Group. The poll revealed 58% of respondents said that they looked to themselves or other people when making moral decisions. Less than one-third said that they look to the Bible to determine morality. The center surveyed 2,000 adults at random long before the impact of the coronavirus and riding across the country. The American Worldview Inventory Study interviewed all ages, ethnicities, beliefs, and political persuasions on the telephone or online. A total of 58% of U.S. adults agreed that, quote, identifying moral truth is up to each individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time, unquote, according to the survey. Sadly, 48% of adults who identified as born-again Christians agreed with that statement. Let me read that again. 48% of adults, so half of the people who identified as born-again Christians agreed with the statement that identifying moral truth is up to each individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. How could a born-again Christian say that there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time? Look at the Ten Commandments. That applies to everyone all the time. Murder, rape, adultery, it applies to everyone all the time. Coveting, stealing, lying, cheating. But 50% or 48% of those who identified as born-again Christians uh, uh, didn't look to the Bible for their moral absolutes. Dr. George Barna said that he was not surprised at the results of the survey as he has observed America's departure from its moorings for decades. This is what uh, the founder of the Barna survey says. He says, quote, the percentage of adults with a biblical worldview has been sliced in half since 1995. As Americans embrace the consequences of unrestrained moral choices, we will see further rejections of traditional marriage, conventional child-rearing practices and objectives, millions more aborted, excessive substance abuse, and wider acceptance of suicide, polygamy, sexual perversion, and religious persecution. Make no mistake about it, eventually the persecution will come upon the church. Always does. 
when a society goes bad. He continues, any society that substitutes humanity's latest and greatest ideas for God's truth and authority is on the fast track to ruin, Barna warned. He said that much of the responsibility to change the trajectory of the nation lies in the hands of the church and the family unit. Quote, the restoration of biblical truth can facilitate the turnaround of a declining society. It starts with churches relentlessly and consistently teaching biblical truth principles for practical application within all dimensions of life. It requires churches equipping parents to teach those truth principles to their children. It demands parents placing their young people in educational, relational, and entertainment environments where God's truth principles are respected and practiced. It advances by electing public officials who pass civil laws in harmony with God's religious law. Restoring our foundations will be neither easy nor quick, but such a turnaround can happen if a remnant of God's people devotes themselves to such a process of cultural deliverance. And so, again, the me-centered gospel the moral freefall of our nation, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. This is a huge difference in, in, in our nation compared to our history and historically the faith of our nation, which was so strong for so many hundreds of years in our country and not so sadly uh, today. In Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9, very familiar passage, passage uh, says this, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to Him. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to Him. God's looking for a man. He's looking for a woman. He's looking for a husband. He's looking for a wife, for a father, for a mother, for a grandparent. For a pastor, he's looking for people to stand up and to take a stand for truth, take a stand for righteousness, and to no longer just go like sheep to the slaughter and and continue in this path of self-destruction as our nation is going to ruin. So woe to those who call evil good and those uh, who call good evil. There were other judgments that God pronounced upon uh, his people and upon the leadership of the religious leadership of his people in Jesus' day. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 5. Jesus says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So Jesus is talking about children and uh, uh, you know, children entering the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, whoever receives one of these little children like this in my name receives me. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. You see, woe for those who harm little children. Woe to the world because of their offenses. And he's speaking specifically of people who would harm little children or who would not protect little children. The warnings to those 
Those who would teach children that they're no longer uh, uh, to believe that they were made in the image of God, but that they were evolved from monkeys and primordial ooze, and they're nothing. They have no soul. They have no spirit. They're not valued in the eyes of God. They're taught in schools that they just evolved from monkeys, and it's a dog-eat-dog world. And survival of the fittest is who survives and who thrives. And uh, instead of teaching them that they were created in God's image and they have intrinsic value because every life is made in the image of God, woe to those who would tell these children uh, this lie. Teaching our children to hate our founding fathers and to tear down the statues and the icons of our founding fathers who came here to make this great nation and telling them that they should be ashamed uh, of our nation's founders. They should be ashamed of Christopher Columbus and Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. It's outrageous. They're trying to take the name of George Washington, the students, off of George Washington University. They want to take his name off the campus. George Washington University. Because they said George Washington was a bigot and a chauvinist and so forth. Uh, and so they're teaching our children this. That they should hate our nation. They should be ashamed of themselves uh, if, if, if they're proud of our nation. And if they're proud of our country, uh, that they should be ashamed of that. They should be ashamed of the color of their skin. Uh, and, and if they're not um, you know, out there demonstrating for Black Lives Matter. Of course, Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, Asian lives matter too, and Hispanic, you know, lives matter, Latin American lives and white lives matter. I mean, God created us all. Chinese lives matter. Everybody's lives matter. We're not saying that black lives don't matter. But the Marxists founded this group, and there are Marxists that are using this group to destroy the foundations of our nation. They're here to destroy our country. Woe to those who would teach the children these things, these lies, and to turn them against God and to turn them against uh, the, the, the founding fathers of our nation, that they should be ashamed of our great nation. Woe to those. Woe to those who would teach little children how to put condoms onto bananas or onto zucchinis in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. These children haven't even hit puberty. They're eight, nine, ten years old. And they're being required in Santa Barbara City School Districts to, to learn how to put condoms onto zucchinis. And they say it's to help with sex trafficking. This is your public dollars that are going to the school systems to teach the children about sex education before they have any interest in sex education. Woe to those. They're teaching children that you don't have to be a boy if you're born a boy. You could be a girl. Or if you're a girl, you could be a boy. And they're even helping the children without telling the parents to begin to do the hormone therapy to transition so that if they decide by the time they're 8, 9, 10 years old that they're transgender and they want to be the opposite sex, they won't even, they don't even have to notify the parents. They'll begin to take them through hormone therapy so that by the time they hit puberty, they will not hit puberty as their biological gender. They will change their gender. Woe to those who would do these, this, these things to the children. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this, another uh, series of, of woes. Luke chapter 6 and verse 24 says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, 
for you shall hung, woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And so the ones who are living for this world, the rich and those who are full and they have everything they want now, uh, but they're not concerned for the things of God. They are popular in the eyes of the world. He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, because that's what they did with the false prophets. Of course, they hated Jesus when he came. They didn't speak well of him, the rich and the powerful people, even the religious people. They hated Jesus because he was a threat to their power structure. But he does say this in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6. He says, but blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. You're in good company then. And Jesus came uh, to seek and to save that which was lost. In Matthew and chapter 23, Jesus uh, basically calls out the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and pronounces a judgment of woes upon them, the religious leaders in Israel at the time. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13 says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Skipping to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. 
Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus was reading them the riot act, the religious leaders of the day because of their blatant hypocrisy, their greed, their lust, their self-centeredness, their egos, their pride. And basically at this point, uh, he declares the lament over Jerusalem that basically they have rejected their Savior. They have rejected their Messiah. And so now God uh, is going to judge them. He says this in verse 37. Jesus lamenting, actually weeping, we're told later, over Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate to you, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at that point, the judgment of God fell upon Israel and God then began his plan to birth the church, which would be Jews and Gentiles. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 talk about God taking the nation of Israel, setting them aside, now working in and through the church until the church age is over, which I believe we're very close to that time. The gospel's gone to the whole world and so forth. Uh, the whole world now has heard the gospel. Every nation uh, has heard the gospel. Every continent the gospel has reached. And so Jesus said when this gospel goes to the whole world, then the end will come. And so God will then take His church to heaven at the rapture, His bride, and then he will pivot back to Israel and begin to work in and through Israel in the last seven-year tribulation period. And then Jesus Christ will return from heaven to save the Jews from the Antichrist. And this is when they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 14 detail this second coming of Christ as the Messiah of Israel for us. And so really the worst thing that could happen and the biggest danger especially for the one who knows better, the child of God or the one who thinks they're the child of God, who goes to church or, or what have you, uh, the biggest danger is God giving you your own way, giving you what you want. God giving you over to your sin. And that's basically what, what God was declaring here uh, and Jesus was declaring to Israel. He says, you were not willing to have me. He wanted to save them. He wanted to gather them as a hen gathers uh, her chicks together. But he says, you were unwilling. He doesn't say you were unable to respond. He says, you were unwilling. You have free will. And you chose to reject the Messiah and the Savior. We don't have time to look at it, but you could go and look it up later. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 talks about when God gives a people over to their sin and the depravity as a result of being given over to wickedness. It's the worst thing that could happen to somebody is for them to get their own way all the time, like a spoiled child. Worst thing you could do is spoil a child because then they're entitled and they think that they always should be happy and 
uh, you should always live to, to serve them and make them happy. Worst thing that could happen to us is when God gives us over and stops striving with us and trying to call us back to Himself and to repentance. God said, my spirit shall not strive with men forever. At some point, God just gives you what you want and He stops striving with you and trying to call you back to Himself. We resist God stubbornly because we're stubborn people, but it's to our own destruction. It's to our own hurt that we reject the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the message of God. Remember, the Lord says, why will you die, O evil man? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want to judge us. He doesn't want to judge America. He wants to save us. But we have to want Him in our lives. We can't just pay Him lip service. Jesus said, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He wants our hearts. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. He should be your master passion with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Is God the priority of your life? And if not, why not? The days are dark and the hour is late. And the coming of Christ, the bridegroom for His bride, is soon. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet, the next chapter, and we'll be in Isaiah 6 actually on this Wednesday night, but listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember in Isaiah 5, he was, he was pronouncing the judgment of God upon God's people because of their sins. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, he told them in Isaiah chapter 5 because of their sins. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. Speaking about angels. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. The prophet of God, when he came into the very presence of God in a heavenly vision, taken in the Spirit as it were before the throne of God to see God in His holiness with the angels there that wouldn't even look at Him. They had to cover their faces because God is so holy. The angels couldn't look upon Him. And Isaiah, the man of God, the prophet of God who was God's mouthpiece, the watchman on the wall, the messenger to God's people, when he came into the presence of God, it wasn't woe is you or woe are you, Israel. It is woe is me. I am undone. Because that's the reality. The closer you get to God, the more unrighteous you realize you really are. Because God is light. In Him there's no darkness at all. And we're full of darkness in our flesh. 
And so we have to come to that place where we have an encounter with God. God is perfection in beauty. He's perfect. He's beautiful. He's light. He's truth. He's righteousness. And He's just. And as a just, righteous God, He must judge sin and He must judge sinners. But He doesn't want to judge us. He'd rather forgive us. He'd rather take away our iniquity. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1 we read this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, nor His ear heavy that He cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Sin is our problem. We have to deal with our sin. That's why Jesus Christ came. That's why He died on the cross. That's why we have to be born again by the Spirit of God. That's why we have to trust Christ as our Savior. Because we're sinners. And we deserve hell. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know we're sinners and we know we deserve hell. We're not perfect. And there's no sin in heaven. So we don't deserve to go to heaven. That's why Jesus took our sins and died on the cross of Calvary for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. He paid the price that we could never pay. He died on the cross and then He rose from the dead in order to conquer sin once and for all, to conquer hell, to conquer death, and to conquer the devil. And He is seated at the right hand of the Father ever to make intercession for His saints, for His people. And He is calling us to Himself by His Holy Spirit, calling us to repentance, calling us to surrender ourselves to Him. And yet, if we will not repent, we will likewise perish because our sins will separate us from God. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 says this, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before My eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Lord is reasoning with mankind. He's crying out to us and calling us to repentance. He's reasonable. He's saying, even though you're a mess, your sins are like scarlet. Come to me and I will make them as white as snow. And Paul the Apostle tells us how simple it is to do this in Romans chapter 10. This is where we conclude this morning. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Paul says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord is over all, and He's rich to all who call upon Him. Romans 10.13 For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we all had to come through that narrow gate and that narrow door. Jesus said, I am the way, the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. John 14, 6. And no one comes to the Father but by me. This is how you enter into the kingdom of heaven as it were. You must confess with your mouth uh, that you are a sinner and believe in your heart that God uh, put your sins upon Jesus Christ on, on the cross and that Jesus died and paid the price for your sins. We must confess this. We must believe this. We must trust the Lord and we must call upon Him. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I would encourage you today, surrender your life to Christ. If you're not a believer here, I'm not going to do an altar call. I'd be happy to pray with you, talk to you after the service. If you want to give your life to Christ, you want to rededicate your life to Christ. Uh, this is not a show. It's not a performance. This is, this is very serious. Very serious because we don't have much time left. It's not time to be playing with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It's time to fully surrender and make ourselves available to Christ to save us and then to fill us and then to use us as His people in these last days. All you have to do is cry out to God from your heart. Accept Christ's offer, free offer, free gift of salvation, and He promises that He will save you. I did that when I was 24 years old, came out of Catholicism, atheism, partying, all the rest. You wouldn't have recognized me if you met me when I was 21, 22 years old as a stockbroker in Orange County. I was not a Christian. Uh, but I had to come to this place. Pastor Bob had to come to this place. We all had to come to this place. Mike Lind, I know a lot of these men's testimony of how they came to Christ. This is how you come to Christ. You have to surrender your life to God and accept His free gift of salvation. And I pray that there would be many this morning who are listening to this message who will surrender to Christ today. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at C-O-A-H podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.